Hello everyone, this is Tom Fox. I'm the Compliance Evangelist and I'd like to welcome you to episode 80 of This Week in FCPA for the weekend of December 22nd, 2017, the Holiday Edition. In this episode, Jay Rosen and I return for a wide-ranging discussion of some of the top compliance and ethics-related stories of the past week, including the guilty plea by a former Embraer employee for his role in bribery in Saudi Arabia, the list of Delavoy's, Delavoy's, excuse me, lawyers who wrote an article for the New York University Compliance and Enforcement blog entitled Oral Downloads of Interview Memorandum to Government Regulators Waive Attorney, excuse me, Work Product Protection, a very significant case around uh, work product and attorney-client privilege. A judge in Italy has ordered ENI to uh, stand criminal trial for their alleged role in a massive bribery scandal in Nigeria. The German company Bill Finger seeks a comeback after a disastrous bribery and corruption scandal and sustaining an FCPA violation. We discussed Henry Cutter's report in the Wall Street Journal Risk and Compliance Journal. Sam Rubenfeld has uh, an article about the Magnitsky Act and how compliance with it is easy, also in the Wall Street Journal, Risk and Compliance Journal. Sam has a second article about uh, Rin McEachern, a supervisory special agent in the Washington, D.C. field office for the FBI's International Corruption Unit, announcing his retirement and uh, moving over to the managing directorship at Exeter in Washington, D.C. We take a look at the conviction in the FIFA conspiracy trial of two of the three defendants. Jay Rosen reports on his weekend report. I conclude my monthly series on one month to a more effective compliance program, uh, the December edition of One Month to Better Written Standards. Uh, Mike Volkoff has a new ebook out entitled Pointing the Finger How Corporate Boards Are Dodging Accountability and What CCOs Can Do About It. And finally, we announced an award by the State Bar of Texas for a top 10 uh, posting this week of one of our podcasts of the podcast series, May the Podcast Be With You, the intersection of Star Wars and compliance. All five episodes are up now. This is Tom Fox. I hope you and your family have a most joyous holiday season. This Week in FCPA is a part of the Compliance Podcast Network. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, the Compliance Evangelist, back again for another episode of This Week in FCPA. This week, we're on episode 80 for the week ending December 22, 2017, the holiday edition. As always, I am joined by my co-host and cohort, Jay Rosen. Jay, welcome. Happy holidays, Tom. Jay, it's uh, 79 degrees here today, so um, I'm going to say greetings from sunny Houston. Awesome. I'm going to say greetings from the mass unit as the uh, M&M twins have been uh, struggling with the flu all week, but we're uh, hoping to get them out of the house and uh, maybe even get them out to see the new Star Wars movies. So fingers crossed. Well, we'll keep that crossed. So, Jay, we had actually a fairly interesting week in the compliance and ethics front, so maybe we can just jump right into it. We had a very, uh, I think, uh, significant FCPA guilty plea this week. A former sales executive of Embraer pled guilty Thursday in federal court in New York to bribing a foreign official in exchange for helping to sell jets to Saudi Aramco. Uh, As many of our listeners uh, will recall, Embraer settled last year uh, with uh, literally a worldwide bribery scheme to uh, sell contracts for jets, one of which was to Saudi Arabia. 
Uh, Saudi Arabia paid two point, excuse me, Brazil, the Brazilian aircraft maker Embraer paid $205 million to the DOJ and SEC back in 2016 to resolve FCPA violations, admitting bribing officials in Saudi Arabia, the Dominican Republic, and Mozambique. The bribe paid here in South America, excuse me, Saudi Arabia, was $1.5 million, and uh, for that, Embraer was awarded a contract for $93 million for the purchase of three aircraft. The bribes were disguised as commissions to a South African company that was partly owned by the friends of the Embraer employee, a, f- a fellow named Colin Stephen, a UK citizen living in the United Arab Emirates. He was convicted of, or rather pled guilty to, one count of violating the FCPA and one count of conspiracy to violate the FCPA. The uh, I, I would say it's really not surprising, Jay, uh, given the, the breadth and scope of the Embraer uh, FCPA enforcement action that we would uh, begin to get some uh, guilty pleas and individual enforcement actions, but it certainly follows what the DOJ has communicated to us literally since the Yates memo, that there would be an increase uh, in the DOJ looking at individuals, uh, really on a straight line almost to the uh, announcement last month by Rod Rosenstein about the new FCPA corporate enforcement policy. So, um, more fallout from the Embraer case. I would uh, expect that we uh, could very well see additional guilty pleas out of this case and guilty pleas literally up until the uh, the end of 2017. I, uh, I think you're right on target there, and um, I believe with everything you're saying about the uh, individual prosecutions. Uh, now, <clears throat> we'll ask you to put on your lawyer hat and uh, tell us about this uh, interesting case with uh, oral downloads and, and what happened with Morgan Lewis. Okay. Well, first of all, it is my legal hat. It's not my uh, Linda Lovelace fan club hat. So just let's note that for the record on oral downloads. The, um, <laughs> <laughs> the uh, uh, article was in the uh, New York University Compliance and Enforcement blog, and it was a really interesting article, and I would commend it to every compliance practitioner. Uh, in-house, private practice, uh, those of you who uh, are also known as Mr. Monitors, it's incredibly important uh, for several reasons, one of which is the list of authors. And it is uh, nine or ten co-authors, but two of which are Andrew Ceresny and Kara Brockmeyer. And uh, Andrew Ceresny, uh, up until 2016, was head of enforcement for the SEC. And of course, Kara Brockmeyer retired last April from the head of the SCPA unit on the SEC. So we have some very uh, distinguished and heavy hitters writing this article. But it's uh, it discusses a decision made uh, by a magistrate court around um, disclosures made by outside counsel after an FCPA investigation to the SEC, and it involved the General Cable case. General Cable settled their FCPA action back in the uh, winter of 2016, and one of uh, the uh, greatest year in FCPA enforcement actions ever uh, cases, and it had a lot of interesting uh, uh, points, but this is really uh, a follow-on to that. In a situation where the SEC is uh, has brought enforcement actions against 
two of uh, the um, General Cable employees regarding uh, counting errors in the Brazilian subsidiary that um, uh, was utilized to hide or disguise uh, corrupt payments. And <clears throat> it involves the firm's outside counsel, Morgan Lewis. Morgan Lewis did an investigation, and they made uh, oral presentations to the SEC, and I would probably note the DOJ as well, in the course of cooperating in the FCPA investigation. The um, court, uh, uh, the individuals who the SEC has brought civil actions against had sought production of the uh, law firm's statements regarding uh, the uh, interviews and their work papers. And the court, uh, Morgan Lewis objected, claiming attorney-client privilege, but the uh, court held that because there were oral briefings to the SEC, that constituted sufficiently detailed summary so that it was the functional equivalent of turning over an interview memoranda. And as such, that was a waiver of the attorney-client privilege. So this is pretty significant uh, for several reasons, but most importantly from the attorney-client privilege perspective, which is that if your law firm is going to make a presentation to the DOJ or SEC, uh, that information, they not only the information they make, which would probably be in the forms of facts, but any interview memorandum they have prepared is also going to be discoverable. And so uh, the paper, the authors know in the paper that this dilemma is even more stark with a recently announced revised policy on corporate enforcement of the FCPA uh, so that uh, because companies and uh, the U.S. Attorney's Manual incentivizes cooperation with DOJ investigators, uh, this is going to uh, probably put more pressure on that component of it. So um, the court did not require that the lawyer's notes and impressions, uh, mental impressions or legal impressions of the interviews be turned over. That's covered under a separate privilege doctrine called the work product doctrine. But for the attorney-client privilege, if you make a disclosure to the Department of Justice of facts which you uncover in your investigation, this could very well uh, waive the entire privilege around how you obtain those facts in any interview memorandum. And, and Jay, um, I don't quite know uh, what your practice may have been, but uh, my practice was I always took notes at a um, interview simply for my own recollection. I always prepared a memorandum based upon my notes. Uh, in the FCPA investigations I've done, I have not done a um, – or had a uh, had the interview transcribed by a court reporter, but I can certainly see that uh, as well. So this is one we're going to have to watch. <clears throat> the uh, the authors say that um, this uh, is a very uh, troubling decision for them, but uh, given the DOJ's starkness in terms of what they expect in terms of cooperation, now uh, companies may. Uh, instruct their outside counsel to, to make these disclosures and put the privilege uh, in play. So um, I'm going to take a, a, a non-legal stab at this, but um, when I read the article, my takeaway was that if you were less specific in your <clears throat> oral information that you would be imparting to the SEC, that at that point you would preserve more of your original privilege. Is that a correct read or not? 
Well, it's uh, it was an argument that was discussed, but Morgan Lewis made that argument to the court, and the court said that the briefings were sufficiently detailed so that they were really the functional equivalent of an interview memorandum. But on the practical side, Jay, while I, I agree with your reading of the article, I don't know how you would uh, essentially make an oral argument that's so vague as to be meaningful for the purpose you're there for, which is to persuade the government that you are extraordinarily cooperating um, and, uh, and still be able to preserve the privilege. I think you've got to, to be pretty specific with the government uh, in terms of turning over facts. And I think the, the authors really uh, point that out at the end, that this is a situation where um, companies are going to have to make a could be a quite of a painful call because if you waive the privilege here with the SEC and or the DOJ, that privilege is waived for all parties, including here uh, uh, former employees of General Cable who are now being sued individually. It could be waived in shareholder derivative actions. It could be waived in anti-competitive action by competitors or um, other actions. So it's going to be a, a kind of a tricky road to um, to navigate, I think. Yeah, it sounds like something that uh, bears watching that we're going to see coming up uh, into the new year. Um, now we switch over and we check in with uh, a German company, uh, Billfinger, which is an industrial services company. And uh, they have spent about uh, $100, million, 100 million euros to get their uh, compliance program in order. And this is uh, an interview that our good friend Henry Cutter at Risk and Compliance Journal did at the Wall Street Journal. And the interview is with uh, Michael Bernhardt, an executive board member who handles HR and safety, and Olaf Schneider, who's the general counsel. And they're discussing how um, Bill Finger initially got into trouble and what they're doing uh, to get out of it. And uh, right now they're um, really have kind of come in and cleaned house. Um, initially, the... Uh, DPA that they were under was supposed to end early, but it got pushed out and they're anticipating that it's going to uh, end in 2018 during the next year. And um, some of the things that are mentioned in the article, which we've talked about quite often about best practices, is that uh, some of the executives' compensation is going to be partly based on how well they uh, drive initiatives in terms of uh, their ethics and compliance, and they'll be using measures in terms of how many trainings, how many workshops, and how much information is communicated to their employees. So that definitely seems to be a step in the right direction. And um, they really seem to have uh, gotten the religion now, and they are really not going to be happy until this is uh, pushed out into the entire organization. So um, from the ethics and compliance perspective, I, I think um, we're happy to see that they've uh, made appropriate steps to move forward, and uh, hopefully this will keep them from becoming a recidivist. Anything you wanted to add on that one, Tom? Yeah, there was one thing that I found uh, really interesting in the article, Jay. And in addition to all the points you raised, um, the uh, Henry asked a question, and I'll just read the Q&A because I found it very powerful. Question from Henry Cutter. 
Bill Finger hired a lot of people from outside for top roles as it underwent its compliance overhaul. Why did you have to hire externally? And Mr. Barnhart answered, to get the networks that people normally have internally destroyed, just have a fresh start. They can come up with a completely fresh mindset and don't have any networks that they have to take care of. That is a major, major thing. And I was really intrigued by that point, Jay, because that is not something that I've really heard uh, spoken about quite uh, really at all in um, any of uh, commentary around FCPA enforcement or compliance or really uh, any of the commentary out that you and I uh, subscribe to. And that's the networks in a company that will facilitate corruption. Here, Bill Finger had a systemic uh, culture of cor- corruption within the company, and they didn't uh, try to re- remedy it by simply firing a few top people. Uh, they went after the networks which facilitated that discussion, and they replaced key people. And I think this is something that the Department of Justice uh, really should pay some some significant attention to when a company comes with a remediation plan in the context of a settlement around an FCPA enforcement action, what did the company do to not only change its culture, but to s- destroy internal networks that may have facilitated uh, corruption? Now, uh, it could be uh, you know, a, a sales group in a particular territory. It can be a sales group in a product line, but it could be cross-functional. It could be a sales group. It could be uh, internal audit. It could be your accounting and finance folks uh, that typically are siloed. But if there's really a network which allowed this and recorded payments, uh, as we saw in the Embraer case, recorded payments uh, to vendors corruptly uh, that were inaccurate or in the general cable case where the Securities and Exchange Commission claims that uh, uh, individuals at general cable actually misrepresented uh, the books and records for corrupt payments. So I found that point really interesting, and that's something that uh, I think bears further exploration. And if um, the journal or, or uh, the Wall Street Journal, uh, other journalists might really explore with companies that have come out of significant FCPA violations, this point on how did you actually not change culture, but destroy the networks within an organization, the structural foundation, which allow corruption to occur. So I found that point really interesting. I'm getting a visual of them almost having to tent the company and uh, fumigate it, knock everything out, and then start again fresh. So uh, I think uh, that also bears watching in the coming year. Absolutely. So, Jay, I don't know. I know you know Sam Rubenfeld, and um, he's quite familiar to our listeners as a part of the Risk and Compliance Journal at the Wall Street Journal. But I have to say one of the things that uh, Sam is very passionate about is the Magnitsky Act. And he talks about it, he writes about it, and he had us an article up today, I think, about compliance with the Magnitsky Act. That's something that has become more to the fore, certainly under uh, the current administration, and uh, whether or not um, uh, there was a quid pro quo by any part of the administration or its its transition team to, um, to soften the Magnitsky Act. So why don't you tell us about what Sam has written about today? Sure. So um, 
Basically, the U.S. Treasury Department on Wednesday released sanctions and regulations for enforcing the Magnitsky Act, which tar targets Russian human rights abusers, but sanctions experts say the rules won't require any new compliance. So uh, with this new uh, information, uh, it now raises a uh, number of people who are blacklisted under the Magnitsky Act to 49 folks, according to the U.S. Treasury Department. And um, these uh, basically, uh, Sam says that it's not really going to change enforcement in terms of how you would deal with this as a company, because if you have uh, a PEP list or any other folks who are going to come up on a sanctions list, uh, these same people from the Magnitsky Act would also also hit that thing. So, um, you know, I, I don't think it's anything new except for the folks who are now making that list. Um, any thoughts on your part, Tom? Nope, nope. I think you, uh, you hit the highlights, and um, it's something that uh, not only is it a political issue here in the United States, but it's really a compliance issue. So I was very pleased that Sam took a look at it from the compliance perspective. Okay, so uh, now, now once again, another article from Sam. Uh, he had a little bit of, <clears throat> excuse me, um, uh, a little bit of a, a news break that he came out with earlier this week on the 19th. And um, I know we throw around the term a lot, our good friend, but in this situation, uh, it really is some news about a good friend. And it's um, George Ren McEckern, who we know of from the FBI. And over the past decade, uh, Ren has been very visible uh, working with the SCCE and uh, other organizations to uh, promote the uh, FBI's uh, anti-corruption agenda. And Wren was basically in charge of um, dealing with money laundering, uh, kleptocracy, and antitrust cases. And a couple of years ago in 2015, when the FBI uh, announced that they were rolling out specialized uh, improved uh, FCPA teams in New York, L.A., and D.C., uh, Wren was definitely uh, one of the folks there who helped them execute. So, um it's uh well, it's bittersweet to see him leave government service. Uh, he will be starting at Exeger, working as a managing director in the firm's global investigation practice, and this will begin after the new year. So um, I know we will um, still be in touch with Ren. Uh, it will nice be nice to have him on our side of the fence in the private sector, uh, but we wish him well with his exciting new opportunity. You know, absolutely, Jay. And uh, I found it really interesting. Um, he has been the public face of the uh, FBI's International Corruption Unit for uh, uh, at least two years, a couple of years, and maybe even longer. Obviously been with the FBI quite some time. So the FBI is going to lose a very, very public person, a person who was on the speaker circuit, who talked about what the FBI did. He was very open, I thought, about talking about <clears throat> um, uh, the numbers of investigations and uh, how corruption investigations were moving forward. He was one of the people who really made clear, even after the new administration came into place, nothing was really changing in the trenches, certainly at the FBI. And <clears throat> I found it very interesting that Exeger would bring him on, obviously uh, a very talented 
individual uh, from the investigative perspective, but also talented as as a you know um, um, as a face for Exeger and someone who can get out and really talk about. Uh, that company, what that company does, uh, services it's going to bring. And so I'm going to be really interested to see uh, see him in the private sector. And uh, as you said, welcome him over. So welcome. And uh, welcome, welcome, Ren. And um, Tom, I, I know you're a big football fan, both U.S. and global football. So uh, why don't you share with us some breaking FIFA news? Right, right. So, um the um, two of the three defendants uh, in the federal trial in Brooklyn were found guilty. Uh, the former heads of the Paraguayan and Brazilian soccer associations were guilty of racketeering, conspiracy, and other charges, giving the government at least a partial win uh, in a major corruption trial. It involved decades-long scheme in which sports marketing companies funneled hundreds of millions of dollars to pay bribes to uh, two dozen soccer officials. This all, of course, turns on the... Uh, uh, DOJ's um, st- uh, operation against FIFA, uh, which uh, happened about uh, 18 months ago. This is the first set of uh, individuals going to trial. Juan Angel Naput, the former head of uh, South American Soccer Federation, Comembol, and Jose Maria Marin, former head of the Brazilian Soccer Federation, were uh, found guilty. A third uh, individual, who I believe was from... Um, Paraguay, but I may have that wrong. Uh, there was no, uh, still uh, no um, decision on him by the jury. So, uh, but a uh, very big win uh, from uh, uh, from the DOJ's perspective. The the sordidness of corruption at FIFA that came out in this trial was just, I thought, uh, overwhelming, and um, they they really did treat it. Uh, I don't even think uh, medieval fiefdom fully describes how uh, these guys enriched their own pockets uh, literally across the globe through the world's most uh, popular sport. So a big win for the DOJ, a big win on corruption. Uh, hopefully this will uh, get some of the other defendants who have uh, pled guilty, excuse me, pled not guilty to consider um their pleas and cooperate with the government going forward. So uh, very interesting. We'll have to wait and see about the third defendant and uh, whether or not uh, uh, what the, uh, the verdict will be on him. That's Manuel Berga, the, uh, actually the former head of the former Peruvian soccer federation as well. So um, very interesting case. Uh, lots went on and uh, we're going to have to keep an eye on this one as well. What's happening in the podcast universe, Tom? So in the podcast world, um, I end up, I'm concluding the last month of my one month to a more effective compliance program. In this month in December, I've been discussing uh, written standards and a best practices compliance program. I wrap that up today and into next week. Um, The um, Tom Fox and Jay Rosen joint effort, may the podcast be with you on the intersection of Star Wars and compliance. I think uh, both we would uh, we would uh, believe it's been a, a, a very big success. It premiered on December 11th. We've had four episodes uh, by now. The fifth one will have posted. So, uh, and uh, the first episode uh, on uh, Star Wars: A New Hope, episode four, and what is risk, was awarded a top ten uh, post this week by the State Bar of Texas. So uh, we've already run one 
one award for this series, Jay. So it was a lot of fun. And uh, I think this may be uh, a harbinger of uh, things you and I do where we have a very tightly focused uh, five-day five or perhaps even longer uh, podcast series. I should also note that May the Podcast Be With You was uh, uh, very generously sponsored by Affiliated Monitors. Um, Jay, uh, I believe we do have a very big announcement that Jay Rosen has actually written a Jay Rosen Weekend Report. Before we get to that, uh, I do want to say that uh, Mike Volkoff has published a new ebook, Pointing the Finger, How Corporate Boards Are Dodging Accountability and What CCOs Can Do About It. It was released this week by Corporate Compliance Insights. Uh, for those of you who don't know, Mike Volkoff is one of the hardest working guys in compliance. It's a great book. So um, take a look at it. I've downloaded it, and it's got uh, lots of bite-sized information that you've uh, come to expect from Mike. So with that, we're going to have a, uh, a, a virtual drum roll, and we're going to ask, is there a Jay Rosen weekend report? Indeed, there is, Tom. It's entitled... LinkedIn, what's in a number, and are you more than just a link collector? So um, my own internal odometer on uh, number of LinkedIn connections uh, kicked over from a 99 into uh, a new uh, realm that I'm um, filling out. And it made me start thinking about, you know, how I've used LinkedIn in the past, how I've gone from having, you know, less than three to 500 folks back in 2004 and now having um, several thousand people who I'm linked in. And it's just a set of, um, I think, best practices, how I think people should use the tool and how, um, you know, in fact, LinkedIn was one of the things that brought you and I together because I started reading your stuff on the internet uh, I reached out to you. You were very generous. And then, uh, you know, you've uh, really helped propo- propel me forward uh, in social media and in the area which we discuss every week, you know, the FCPA ethics and compliance. So um, this is uh, kind of like a swan song to the end of the year. And, um, you know, some hopeful ideas about how people can get the best out of using social media and connecting with like-minded folks. So Jay, um, I guess uh, I did want to ask, uh, I believe I'm correct in, uh, or am I correct in believing that uh, the celebration of Hanukkah has concluded? Yes. The last uh, day of Hanukkah was this past Wednesday. And so did the, uh, the Rosen household have its annual Hanukkah celebration for uh, M&M uh, and crew? We did. It was a little bit, um, as I said, uh, dampened by the uh, by the flu that the girls were having. But uh, we had uh, Rebecca's mom came in from uh, D.C. and my sister and my niece came in from the East Coast. So we uh, we had a lot of fun. We played some dreidel. We uh, had some traditional uh, jelly donuts. And uh, now we're we're ready to. Uh, celebrate uh christmas the way that we always do which is uh going to see some movies on christmas day and getting some chinese food so uh what are your plans for the holidays tom so uh that sounds like actually the christmas day i want um uh, my wife and i are going to england we're going to the old country uh back to the old country to see uh uh clan story and uh, uh my wife's 33 cousins 
So uh, it should be a rollicking good time. And uh, we are on Christmas Day, we're going to have uh, English Christmas dinner at a pub. So uh, that's going to be interesting. Perhaps I can uh, report on that at some future podcast. But uh, heading over to the old country and looking forward to seeing my uh, in-laws and the family and uh, a lot of other people. So, um, Jay, uh, with that, you want to take us home from this holiday edition? Sure. So on behalf of Tom Fox, the Compliance Evangelist, and myself, Jay Rosen, Mr. Monitor, we'd like to thank you not only for joining us this week, but joining us throughout the year. And this has been the holiday edition of This Week and FCPA for the week ending December 22nd. Wishing you all happy holidays and a wonderful new year. This is Tom Fox again. I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode, the special holiday edition of This Week in FCPA. If you have any questions, you can email me at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. You can email Jay at jrosen at affiliatedmonitors.com. If you have listened to this podcast on iTunes, I would greatly appreciate it if you would rate our podcast as it would help in our rankings and also help get the word out about the only weekly roundup of compliance, ethics, and compliance-related stories. Once again, thank you for listening to this episode of This Week in FCPA. This Week in FCPA is a part of the Compliance Podcast Network. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.